0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we to open to Acts chapter 4 and, and 3. We're going to look there today. You know, no matter what you do for a living or what you did for a living, every job has its drawbacks. Am I right? I mean, every one of you, I'm sure, could raise your hand and agree with me that even if you loved your job and it was the best job in the world, there were some drawbacks. Every job has its way of, of jobbing you, Right? All vocations have their, their frustrations. Oh, I, I belong to this Facebook page of, of small church pastors, and it, it's a great group of men from all over the world that, that pastor small churches, and it's a way to encourage and, and strengthen one another, and it's a way to bounce ideas off one another and just just talk about life. And it's interesting because one of the, the great frustrations I hear many times is... People seem to be looking for a perfect church. Everywhere you go, people seem to be looking for that, that, that perfect church. And pastors hear these complaints about something that happened in church or someone in church. And, and usually it's always prefaced by, now I know the church isn't perfect, but... <laughs> and what we know deep down is they're looking for that perfect church. I heard about one couple that went into their pastor to to talk about joining the church and and they were very very candid with the preacher. And they said, honestly, we are looking for the perfect church. And the pastor said to them, well, if you find it, don't join it. Because if you do, you'll ruin it. (laughs) There's no such thing as the perfect church. Because there's no such thing as the perfect person. But as we begin to study, as we continue studying in the book of Acts, it almost seems like the early church was perfect. I mean, you can't help but read about the early church in these first couple chapters of the book of Acts and then look at the church today and think, what happened? Why doesn't our church look like that church? And so far, the early church has enjoyed some pretty smooth sailing. God has kept his promises. He sent the the Holy Spirit upon them, and 3,000 people came to know Christ in one day. In Acts 1 and 2, we see a church and what it looks like when they're hitting on all eight cylinders as they seek God, as they serve others, as they share Christ. The Bible says they were having favor with all people. The most popular institution in that day was the church. They had a 100% approval rating. They would close every service with that old gospel hymn, Happy Days Are Here Again. But then we move into these next two chapters in Acts and we encounter some firsts. The first is the first miracle that's happened since the resurrection of Jesus. There's this man who has been lame from birth and he's healed. He goes every day and he sits in front of the temple gates and he begs. He, everyone that goes through the gate, he asks for, for anything. Anything they can give him to help. And as Peter and John begin to walk into the temple, he, he reaches out and he asks for money. But they give him something greater. Now look with me. Acts chapter 3. We'll start with verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And he went with them into the temple court, walking, jumping, and praising God. A man that had never taken a step in his entire life is now standing and walking. He has a 42-inch vertical leap, jumping, uh, that's in my notes, maybe. It's preacher's <laughs> Bible, right? But he's walking and he's jumping and he's praising God as he walks into the temple. And, and you know what happened? It's what happens anytime something like this happens. A crowd gathers. And they begin to see this man who had never taken a step and now he's walking and he's jumping and they're getting excited. And, and what does Peter do? He, he does what any good preacher would do he starts to preach. And he launches into his favorite subject on the resurrection of Jesus. And on the spot, it says in chapter 4 that 2,000 more men came to faith in Christ, increasing the number to 5,000 new Christians since the day of Pentecost. In two weeks, 10% of the population of Jerusalem has come to faith in Christ, and heaven has got to be breaking loose. But hell was not far behind. Because the church is now going to be introduced to another first. Because for the first time in its short life, it's going to face persecution. It's two weeks old. And in the middle of this tremendous scene of this wonderful miracle, in walks the town bullies. Chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Do you get it? Th- this is the same crowd that had just crucified Jesus about two months earlier. See, we're in this series that we're looking at the, the first church and, and how it all began and where the church all began and what does the first church look like? And what does the church that's, that's ignited by the Holy Spirit of God look like? Because we know that, that, that the fire of the Holy Spirit and fire not only brings light, it also brings heat. And so, for the first time, the early church is facing the heat of preaching Jesus, of telling the truth, of of just simply doing what God has called them to do. And out of this first persecution, we're going to see the church's first recorded prayer. And we're going to see how Peter and John and the early church handled this first wave of opposition. Because we have to understand that, that this scripture will teach us these lessons on how do we respond? As the church, as believers in Jesus, how do we respond when trials, when troubles, when, when persecution, when opposition comes our way? Because when they come into our life, we don't need to look for a place to run. We need to find a place to stand. You know the old saying, fight fire with fire. I think that's a very biblical principle here in this chapter. But keep in mind, everything that happens in chapter 4 to Peter and to John and to the early church happens simply because a man is now able to walk. That's all that happened. And see, remember, when we're facing those problems, we're taught by God's word how to stand. And we're taught first to stand tall. Continue with me in chapter 4. We'll pick up verse 1 again. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. I I don't know if you're one that likes to write in their Bibles, but but if you are, I, I would encourage you, over those first six verses in Acts, write this one word that'll give you a picture of what's really going on, intimidation. Because I think the number one weapon that the world has against the church, as against people of God, is intimidation. I mean, if you remember here, the church is not very strong. They, they, there were only 5,000 disciples. This was, this was the early days. The gospel hadn't expanded very far. It was really still in one city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They had very few leaders, and those leaders, they weren't really experienced in this new movement. The church was small compared to the rest of the world. I mean, when it came to political influence and and money and power, they were just weak and powerless. And so Luke is very careful as he paints this picture And he lists no more, no fewer than 11 different individuals or categories of individuals that Peter and John were going to be facing. Right? They're standing before the priests. This was the the front line of the religious establishment. They were in charge of all the temple activities. They decided who could come and who could go into the the most important religious institution in the world. There was the the captain of the temple guard. You, You remember him. He was the one who led the soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. They were the Sadducees. All the Sadducees were were the high priests. They were the the dominant religious political force, not just in Jerusalem, but in Israel. And they throw Peter and John immediately in jail. And the next day, they're joined by the elders. The elders are this group of, of older, wiser men with tremendous influence. They're joined by the rulers. These were the people that held government authorities and tremendous political power. And then they brought in the chief justice of the Supreme Court. They brought in the high priest. I mean, him him alone would have told everyone just how serious of a matter this was, how much power they were bringing upon Peter and John. Continue with me. Verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They began to interrogate them. And in those days, in an interrogation, basically all the powers that be literally surrounded the interrogator. I mean, you were literally on the hot seat right in the middle of the fire. And the, the one question that they asked, by what power, by what authority are you doing this? And I love what happens next because because Peter speaks. I mean, think about it. Just just two months earlier, Peter was in the garden and around the little campfires, and someone says, are you with Jesus? No, I don't don't know what you're talking about. You were with Jesus. No, I, I I don't know him. You were with Jesus. No, I don't know the man. And he turned and he ran and he fled for his life. But now Peter's sitting there before this group of leaders, and he's not looking for a place to run. He, he's found a place to stand. And he looks at all this religious power and this political power in front of him, and he thought, you know, I may never get a chance like this again. I'm going to take it. And he begins to preach. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter stands before all of these authorities on one thing, Jesus Christ Christ, was raised from the dead, and he's alive. He stands on this one foundation that no one can shake, the foundation of an empty tomb and a resurrected Lord. And if that didn't infuriate them enough, he makes one of the greatest statements, I think, throughout Scripture. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Think about how powerful that statement is. I mean, never before that statement and never since that statement has any name of any other person been proclaimed as the only way to God, the only path to salvation. And you've got to look at Peter and you've got to go, how? How can this guy who was so scared two months ago that he ran how, to deny Jesus three times now stand so tall and speak so boldly. It's because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit that it was ignited by the spark of the resurrection of Christ. And I hope when we're given the opportunity to share our faith in Christ, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's in our neighborhoods, or whether it's in groups we belong to, I pray we never flinch from bearing witness to the resurrection that lives in us. I pray we stand tall. Because when we stand tall, we also have to stand tough. I mean this this, to say the least, this was not the response that all these authorities were expecting. (laughs) Verse thirteen. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John took their best shot and they hadn't budged an inch. I mean, the last time that these soldiers saw Peter and John, it was in their rearview mirror as they were hauling Jesus away. But today they're not backing down. Today they're standing firm on the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 14, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, I mean, how awesome is that, right? Oh, Oh, he's there. Dang, we didn't kick him out. The, the, The proof is in the pudding, right? He's standing with them. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men, speak no longer to anyone in this name. See, the only thing that the powers that be wanted Peter and John to do was stop talking about Jesus. And you know, 2,000 years later, Nothing's changed go to church fine practice your religion cool do those little rituals and things you do give people the feel good message help the sick and the poor right but don't talk about Jesus. I mean that shows us just how much the enemy fears the witness of God's people. The one thing the world wants to do with each and every one of us is intimidate us into staying silent about Jesus. And you know, the sad truth is, too many times it succeeded. I mean, be honest. How many times, instead of looking for reasons that that we should share about Christ, do we find excuses on why we can't? I read about a little boy. He was outside uh, playing with his dog. It was this mixed-breed, mongrel-looking dog. And a man came by, and he said, Son, what, what kind of dog are you playing with? He said, Oh, it's a police dog. The man said, that ugly, mangy, half-breed mutt is a police dog? He said, yeah, he's in the secret service. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think, sadly, too many times we as Christians are in the secret service. And we keep this message and this hope of, of the resurrection of Jesus to ourselves. But we need to be more like the, the Tim Tebow's and the Billy Graham's of this world and, and encourage each other and our, and our young people that we need to take the platforms that God gives us and we need to speak up. I mean, all they asked Peter and John to do was just keep your mouth shut about Jesus. You want to teach? Fine. You want to perform miracles? Great. You want to do all this stuff? Yeah, whatever. But don't do it in the name of Jesus. What would you do? I mean, we get choices every day, don't we? Whether we're going to follow what the world tells us to do or we're going to follow what what Christ has told us to do. We choose every day whether we're going to cut and run or whether we're going to stand firm. How do we respond? Here's how Peter and John responded. Verse 19. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, Peter and John state right here the one principle that should drive everything that we do, especially when confronted by a world (laughs) that has no love for Christ. This is the question what is right in the sight of God? Uh, President Truman once said, the ultimate test of any presidential decision is not whether it's popular at the time, but whether it's right. If it's right, make it, and let the popular take care of itself. See, when we're faced with with problems, with, with persecution, with opposition, we need to find a place to stand, and stand tough, And then stand true Peter and John get released from prison and what do they do they go back to the church and they report everything that happened and we get to see another first the first recorded prayer that the early church ever prayed and it begins in verse 24 and they turn their eyes towards God who raised Jesus from the dead and they put him in the proper place and proper perspective and I don't want to take time this morning to read through the whole prayer, but, but I encourage you to do that this afternoon. Go home and read this prayer. It, it's so amazing. Because they acknowledge that, that God is sovereign, that he is the creator of the world and control of the universe. And they say that God is strategic and, and everything happens according to his plan. Even the crucifixion of Christ was according to what God planned to take place. And what's most amazing about this prayer is what they pray for. I mean, Peter and John were just released from prison and most certainly certain death. And they know that if they continue to preach in the name of Jesus and continue to do what they've done, that fire they're facing is gonna get bigger and it's gonna get hotter. What do they pray for? Well, what would you pray for if you were in their shoes and their sandals? I can tell you what I might have prayed for. I might have prayed for destruction. I might have said, Lord, can you just wipe out the enemies of this church so that we can have a clear path of spreading your gospel? I, I would have prayed for, for definitely protection. Lord, can you, just, can, can you just watch over my family? Can you just watch over our church? Keep us safe. Keep us out of prison. Keep us from being beaten. Keep us from being ridiculed. I might have prayed for direction. Lord, can you just, can you just change our direction? May, maybe show us a spot where, where people don't know about Jesus and, and there are no Pharisees and Sadducees where we have to butt heads with. But here's their prayer. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servant to speak your word with great boldness. Enable your servant to speak the word with great boldness. I mean, that's what got him in trouble in the first place, wasn't it? Do they really know what they're looking and asking for? They were asking to fight fire with fire. They were asking God to help them to stand when so many others run. And here's the answer. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. See, notice, when, when you pray to God to give you boldness to speak his word, not only is he going to give you the boldness to speak, he's going to give you the words to speak. And his Holy Spirit will give you this burning passion to share about Christ at every opportunity. True witnesses for Christ are are created by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever prayed, God, give me the boldness to speak for you? The boldness to stand tall? To stand tough? To stand true? I mean, you know the reason that the gospel is still proclaimed today in the 21st century is because God answered that prayer Back in the first century. Can we as the KV Christian Church pray that prayer? I mean, remember, be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. But can we ask God for his boldness? There was a group of of Christians that went to Romania for a mission trip. And it was not long after the revolution and the overthrow of communism. And they were serving with this Romanian pastor, Yosef Sant. And the Christians from the U.S. asked Yosef, they said, why does Romanian Christians have such a spiritual fervor? He said, well, here's the difference. He said, Americans talk about commitment. Romania, we talk about Surrender. See, when you talk about commitment, you're committed to God and you hold all the cards and you decide when you're going to be committed and when you're not. When you talk about surrender, God holds all the cards. He said back in the 1970s, he was a leading pastor in Romania and he had been arrested multiple times. And it all came to a head one night at 3 a.m. Romanian police broke in his home, drug him out of bed, arrested him, stripped him, and began to beat him in the prison. And they kept making one demand, quit talking about Jesus. But he refused. And after hours, the the police station captain came bursting in the room and he said, you know, I have one demand, quit preaching Christ or I'll end your life tonight. And at that moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked at the captain and he said, you know, if you use your weapon, I'm going to use mine. And the captain said, what do you mean? He said, your weapon is killing. My weapon is dying. He said, if you kill me, my popularity explodes. If you kill me, my tapes, my manuscripts, my messages multiply. Unbelievers will say, this man was willing to die for what he was preaching. I would better hear what he has to say. My sermons will speak ten times louder if you kill me because you killed me. Well, the captain of the jail jumped up and he said, you're nuts. You've lost your mind. And a few moments later, they came in and they gave him his clothes and drove him back home. The next morning, he got up, barely able to walk, and and he went outside his door and there were two uh, police officers. And so he held his arms out again, expecting they were going to arrest him and take him back for more beatings. Uh, But they said, no, you, you don't understand. We're not here to arrest you. We're here to protect you. I said, what do you mean? And the officer says, you know, I don't understand either, but we've been given orders to escort you everywhere you go and to make sure that nothing happens to you. See, God used him to help overthrow that terrible communist regime. And revival broke out in Romania because he didn't look for a place to run. He looked for a place to stand. So my prayer for us as this church, as believers in Christ, is that God will give us the boldness to speak his word, to stand when others are running, to stand on the truth of the resurrection of Christ, and then to see what amazing things God can do. As we close this morning, my question is, do you need to take a stand this morning? Maybe that stand begins by surrendering your life to Christ. If that's what you desire, I invite you to come.